When we're talking about future dangerousness, it has to be put into a, a situation where people can understand why that person appears to be a future danger. It's not because the jurors necessarily react so negatively to this evidence. It's because it's been so poorly introduced into court that it's sort of a gift for the prosecutor. In 2002, the film Minority Report presented a future in which crime has been completely eliminated thanks to the ability of authorities to predict in advance who will commit a crime. Now, that film was set in the year 2054, and its premise is still fantastical and absurd. But the connection between criminal justice and brain chemistry is not science fiction. In 2015, Fordham established the Neuroscience and Law Center to explore how advances in neuroscience have prompted the legal profession to question long-held notions of criminal culpability, free will, thought, behavior, and pain. Deborah Denno, the center's founding director and professor of law, recently sat down with us to talk about her work and the center. I'm Patrick Verrill, and this is Fordham News. You recently said that you've been to conferences where people have said things like, you know, when neuroscience gets fully integrated into the court system, which is silly because it's already in the courts. When would you say that this practice first started? We don't know exactly when it first started, but we do know that it started probably in the 80s when some of this modern neuroimaging was starting to come into place. So, for example, in the John Hinckley case, a uh, PET scan was, was used then. Hinckley was uh, accused of attempting to assassinate Ronald Reagan. It was a case that captivated the country, and uh, a lot of investigation was made of his background, including the fact that his his brain may not be the same as a normal brain. Now, your center is currently studying every criminal case in the United States that has used neuroscience in any capacity from 1992 to 2012. What have you learned so far? The first major finding is that uh, we've learned that neuroscientific evidence is widely used throughout the criminal justice system. And the second kind of finding is um, this evidence is mostly used by defense attorneys, and most of these cases are death penalty cases. And I think uh, they're death penalty cases because uh, the stakes are so high. Uh, people don't plead guilty as much. They go to uh, they go to trial. The trials last a long time. There's a lot of money spent. Many of these people in these death penalty uh, cases are brain damaged or have all sorts of problems. You know, the arguments are made to mitigate. Uh, a case down from death to uh, to someone something where somebody wouldn't be executed, but it's also used for all sorts of defenses, including insanity, diminished capacity, etc. The third major finding is that um, a disproportionate number of lawyers who don't use neuroscientific evidence are found to be incompetent because of that. In other words, courts expect attorneys today to use neuroscientific evidence to introduce it into court when it's relevant and to do it correctly. So we've reached the point basically where it's not only is it being used, but it's if you don't use it, it's considered improper. That's right. If you don't use it, it's consistent. It's considered improper. And I wanted to emphasize that it's very hard to find somebody incompetent. Probably less than one percent of all attorneys are ever f get that kind of uh, that kind of disqualification. So in my data set, I've found situations where up to twenty percent of attorneys are found to be incompetent for not introducing this evidence. So that's a really extraordinary result. Any sense of, of how successful this is used in defense cases? 
It's hard to, to determine how successful it is because there's so many things going on in these cases. That said, because attorneys fight so much to get this evidence into court, uh, I think they believe that it certainly has a strong chance of being successful. And I've certainly seen a lot of cases where it seems to be very influential on judges. You talk a lot about using it in defense cases when it comes to the death penalty. Can you talk a little bit about when it's used by prosecutors? So I included in my database cases in which victims uh, had brain injuries. So I have cases in which defendants have brain injuries and the arguments are used by defense attorneys. But there are about a third of my sample are cases in which victims have some kind of brain injury because they've been injured by a defendant. And that's in introduced in, into court to suggest that uh, that the defendant intended to do what they did or to suggest that the defendant is a very violent and dangerous person. A lot of the cases in which uh, victim neuroscientific e evidence is analyzed are, and it's almost always cases involving children, and a lot of those cases are shaken baby cases. And in these cases, prosecutors have been immensely successful uh, until relatively recently using that kind of argument. In my introduction, we I talked about the film Minority Report and this whole idea, you know, in this fantastical future setting about being able to predict how people will act, whether or not they will commit crimes. And I feel like this is the area where that would really come into play. And, and it sounds like there have been instances, especially when it comes to using it as a defense, where this might become an issue. Can you talk a little bit about that? You mentioned Hinckley in particular. Yeah, Hinckley in, in particular. Of course, Hinckley was a CAT scan was used to suggest that um, that he had a, a certain kind of brain damage that may have had may have rendered him uh, particularly impulsive or susceptible to uh, to acting out in the way that he did and or make him more violent. Some of the new technology that people hear about, they're not used in court yet. So, uh, so for example, people at Harvard who can measure or distinguish between true and false memories in a brain. And they the way they do that is they um, they, you know, test subjects with lists of words, and um, so you have to memorize 20 words, and you think candy was in the list, but you're, you know, when you're repeating back, you say chocolate instead, uh, and that's going to be a false memory, and they can tell the difference between a true and a false memory. That said, uh, they, you know, those people wouldn't testify in court. They don't think their science is ready. It's one thing to say someone's brain damage and their brain damage looks like some, you know, is on the level of a schizophrenic or uh, and or it's a type of brain damage that would suggest this person is, is very impulsive. But it's an entirely different thing to say uh, they're talking about a false memory based on our scan of them or, um, you know, our technique our uh, P, the P300 response indicates they were actually at the scene of the crime. That's something that would overwhelm a jury so much. It would have so much weight. It could be, could be considered, at least in legal terms, more prejudicial than probative. I want to go back to the part where you, you talked a little bit about being neuroscience being used in defense cases and specifically how there's sort of an ethical quandary involved in using it as a defense because if you are a defense lawyer and you claim that your client did XYZ because something was going on in their brain that wasn't working right, 
I'm being colloquial, obviously right, here. Right. But that that opens you up to the possibility that if that if they're that damaged, that they might not be able to be released back into society. Well, that's right. I mean, this is a concern that you see in court cases. It's one of the biggest explanations that attorneys have for not introducing this evidence. In other words, they're saying uh, it was a defense strategy not to introduce evidence of brain damage because I was concerned that the jury might react very negatively and think this is person is going to be a future danger and just hurt again. Uh, so, so it is an ethical consideration. Uh, that said, at least my research or my analysis of the cases I have would suggest if you're going to err, you should probably err on the side of admitting it to a jury because it seems to have quite a mitigating impact. Or We have seen evidence of that in particular cases where juries are questioned and they'll say that they, uh, that they thought it was a, a valid explanation for why somebody did what they did. Yeah. Have there been a lot of cases where that where juries have said, "Okay, well, we buy that we buy that defense that you were, you know, brain damage caused you to commit this crime," but at the same time, this is proof that you're too dangerous to be let go. There, there. I have found cases, and I have cases in my data, data set where prosecution, at least, is arguing uh, that the defendant is is going to be a future danger. It's this double-edged sword issue that comes up. The defense attorney introduces the evidence and the prosecution uses that evidence to suggest that the defendant is going to be a future danger. Uh, and um, and whether that affects juries, it's really hard to tell cause and effect because, again, this happens so much in cases where there's a lot of violence and maybe that's what's overwhelming the jury. Uh, that said, I did want to emphasize that in a lot of those cases, uh, it, it, they happen because the defense hasn't been doing a very good job. In other words, they introduce the neuroscientific evidence, they used an expert, but that expert is the one who blurted out uh, something to the effect, this person may commit a crime again. So in these cases, the defense has actually made a mistake or their expert has been very sloppy. And the prosecution jumps on a comment like that in an effort to use it against the defendant. Yikes. Yeah. That's not a good defense lawyer. It's not, and I've seen a lot of really bad defense lawyers. There's going to be one thread throughout all these cases is some of these attorneys are doing a really bad job. And I have one case where the judge literally steps in and says, this attorney is hurting their client. They're doing their client more harm than good. I've encountered cases where defense attorneys uh, use experts in situations where the, that expert has told the attorney, don't put me on the stand. I'm going to hurt your client, you know, inadvertently. And the attorney puts them on the stand anyway. Oh, so, you know, when we're talking about future dangerousness, uh, it has to be put into a, a situation where people can understand why that person appears to be a future danger. It's not because the jurors necessarily react so negatively to this evidence. It's because it's been so poorly introduced into court that it's sort of a gift for the prosecutor uh, to make a future dangerousness argument. So we basically, all of this needs to be taken with a giant grain of salt, it sounds like. A giant grain of salt and with a reminder that, you know, attorneys really have to do their homework if they're going to be working with this evidence and arguing on behalf of defendants. You know, I think one thing to emphasize is, 
you know, maybe the minority report scenario is, uh, you know, there's some sense of reality to that. I see us getting to that. We can already, uh, scientists are already starting to try to measure what's going on in people's heads in terms of whether somebody intends to do something. It, and uh, and the science is there already. It's not uh, sufficiently sophisticated or refined to introduce into the courtroom, but we know someday it will be. And uh, with every passing year, this neuroscientific evidence gets more precise. And you know, a number of people in this area have said that you know, within 10 years, it may be already at the level of precision of DNA evidence. Uh, where if somebody has a certain kind of brain damage, we'll, we'll know much better or have a much better explanation of what that, what that involves. One thing I've heard is that there's, there's a kind of growing understanding of how uh, in early life, uh, when you're a child, that if you are exposed to you know, an unhealthy environment, if you are not given good nutrition and you're surrounded by violence, that that can have an effect on, on, on your brain, you know, your brain development and that in ways that will never change back. Absolutely. I think a key message to take away from uh, this, the introduction of neuroscientific evidence into the courtroom is this evidence helps us most in trying to assess the effects of the environment on somebody's behavior more than anything internal going on necessarily. In other words, I think a big concern with neuroscience is it's going to um, make people look very different from one another in, in terms of their brain capacity, when in fact what I think it really does is show us how powerful a bad environment can be and what we should do, the, and that we as a society could do a much better job in, in cleaning it up. Yeah, so I mean, I guess, I mean, we'll never get past the, I mean, obviously there's, there's gonna be people who are saying, well, some people are just beyond hope, they're just naturally evil. Other people will say, well, maybe that's true, but let's also take a look at where they came from and who they were surrounded by and how they came to that point. Absolutely. I really don't like the word evil. I think uh, it's, it's not that, that, that's, that's not a court term, is it? It's, it it's, <laughs> well, except I've heard an awful lot of judges use it. Yeah. yeah and uh, so... Um, not a technical term. It's not a technical term, and when I've heard a number of judges use it, and I always say, look, this is really much more of a, actually, it's much more of a religious term, isn't it, or uh, something something along those lines, uh, but it's certainly, you know, widely used and something that would be used by a juror, but I, I think with the introduction of neuroscientific evidence and the more we learn about human behavior, maybe, you know, we as a society or we as jurors would be less likely to use a term uh, like someone was evil as opposed to someone has substantial amount of brain damage and they were widely influenced by, uh, by their environment.